Hello everyone, this is Amy Wolf in our session, How to Be an Agent of Hope. I by no means am an expert, but I am gonna share with you a very specific date and time in my life when I was 15 years old, when I felt the calling to be an agent of hope. And then also what that has meant for me in the last three years in particular, it's kind of taken over my life. Then I'm gonna share some three, thoughts to consider three different ways or thoughts about being an agent of hope right now, which I think is a timely topic for us to talk about. But let me take you back. On August 20th, 1999, when I was 15, uh, the date is important, but I'll explain later. I was sitting on my bed. I was listening to Kenny G. Why? I have no idea. <laughs> But I lit some candles, put on Kenny G on my boombox, and I sat on my bed reading my Bible. You know, typical 15-year-old stuff. And I, I was in Luke chapter 2, and I caught the story of a woman named Anna. It's verses 35 through 38. And the, Anna was married when she was young, very typical in that culture, but her husband passed away seven years into being married. She remained a widow the rest of her life, and we catch her in Luke chapter 2 in the synagogue testifying to God's goodness when Jesus was a young child. It wasn't so much this passage that struck me as it was the commentary in my youth Bible, and it had this little paragraph next to this, these verses about Anna. In these statements, in this commentary, is when the calling to be an agent of hope solidified in my soul. Here, I want to read you briefly. It's a few sentences what the commentary said, and then I'll explain why it struck me. Anna had lost all that was dear to her in her world, but Anna's loss was God's opportunity to use her for special service to him. God is like a husband to the believing widow, and he watches over her. Anna's mourning was turned into joy as she realized God's call to be a special spokesperson for him. Have your dreams faded away with the loss of a loved one or material security? God waits for you to turn to him and find that his best for you is yet to be. The word that struck me at 15 years old sitting on my bed was a special spokesperson for God. That's when I decided I wanted to be an, a motivational speaker, which is a little bit funny if you know my day gig. As a career, I own a small business with my father and we do speaker coaching, meaning I have a lot of opportunities to build up speakers, mostly in corporate environments, but once in a while for TED Talks and more inspirational speaking. And only in the last three or so years have I really had the opportunity to not do corporate speaking, but more inspirational speaking using my story and my experiences. So just now seeing the fruition of this calling I felt at 15 years old, that I wanted to be an agent of hope, that I wanted to take my trauma and my pain and use it as a gift of empathy to other people. In fact, I made a pact with God that night. Pacts are a scary thing with God, but I did. I was 15. <laughs> I was naive. And I told him, use me. I will share my story if it helps other people. Exactly one year and 11 days before I felt this calling, 
It was August 9, 1998, and it was the day that I witnessed the death of my brother, Jeremy, who was 18. So I was 14 years old. We were sitting in Sunday school that hot August day. We were just so stir crazy. We did not want to be in Sunday school at church. It was a hot day. We wanted to go outside and play. Because of the youth group in the church, I was actually friends with my brother's friends, even though they were four years older than me. And we devised a plan to go home after church, get on our bathing suits, and head to a local lake for a day of swimming. So we did. We got to the lake, and I remember I stayed on shore with one of my friends while Jeremy and a bunch of his friends decided to swim across a small inlet of the lake. I don't know how much time passed, but I remember laying on shore and hearing a commotion in the water. I got up and walked down the shore enough to see that Jeremy was struggling. Evidently, he got tired halfway through swimming across the inlet of the lake, and him and a friend turned around to come back. The lake is interesting in that Jeremy was very close to me, probably 20, 25 feet from me, but it was very deep. Uh, There was a drop-off in the water, so I could actually talk to him, and we made eye contact, and he could hear me. And I implored him, Jeremy, just float on your back to regain your strength. Float on your back, get strong again, and then swim the rest of the way back in. And he tried. He would try to float on his back, but then he would fall under the water and then surface back up until he didn't come back up. His friend had to swim back to shore because of his own wellness. Strangers tried to dive in to save Jeremy, but it was murky and they couldn't find him. I, at 14, had to find a stranger's cell phone, call my parents, tell them something was wrong. It wasn't a real clear message to them. Eventually, search and rescue came. They did find his body 40 minutes later. I remember they put up a privacy screen on the shore and watched their shoulders rise and fall as they gave CPR to Jeremy. Life flight came and was about to land when it took off. And that's when we knew that they couldn't save him. A police officer came up and told our family that he had passed away. I would say that The next part, uh, explaining what happened after the trauma, uh, I feel uncomfortable because what I experienced was a merciful covering and sparing uh, of a lot of pain and suffering for me. And I know that's not everyone's story. I know not everyone miraculously finds themselves with peace in the middle of trauma. So I wanted to be sensitive, but true and authentic to my story is that instantly I had peace. I shared in one of the videos shared in the first main session of this conference that uh, in my trauma, I really had to think three things really quickly. Either this God I thought I knew growing up didn't exist at all. Second, maybe he does exist, but he's just mean. Or third, God exists, and he is sovereign and good, even when I don't get it. And at 14, I just really quickly resolved that God was sovereign and good, and I won't get it. Later, my mom described her grief journey losing her son when she asked God to understand why. He had told her, 
if I tried to explain it to you, it would be like trying to smell the letter nine. <laughs> it just won't make sense to you on this side of heaven. But what it did at a really young age, number one, it made my faith really concrete in that it was tested. And number two, it really gave me a, a really strong sense of urgency. Well, I would call it urgency. Other people close to me in my life would probably call it impatience, which would be fair. But I had this sense of urgency. If Jeremy only had 18 years to live, maybe I did too. Maybe I only had four more years. I didn't know how much time I had and the fragile nature of life was so keen and clear to me that I had this urgent desire to make my life count, to make my life matter no matter how many years I had left. Which actually brings me to May 2017. Uh, I'm a doer and I found myself in a situation where I didn't know what to do. In May 2017, I was sitting in my good friend Lanny's family room with a mug of coffee. It was Wednesday night, small group night. We met, we meet every week and we have with the same four families and two women for the last, oh gosh, probably seven years, over seven years. And we'd get together and read books about faith, sometimes not faith-based, and do life together, support one another. And it was one night when Mark in our group, who is a biology teacher at a nearby school district, said just offhandedly about the, the suicide rates that he had heard in our community over the last couple months. I don't remember the number, but I do remember feeling shocked, feeling stunned. The doer in me was, was wrestling. What do I do with that? I am definitely not qualified. I am not a mental health expert. I have never struggled with self-harm ideation. I had a dear cousin who uh, did attempt to hurt herself, but the truth is that the topic of suicide was really intimidating and foreign and uncomfortable to me. So what do I do? <laughs> and on top of that, I am a young mom. I own a small business. I have to travel for work. I already volunteer in the schools. I volunteer teaching Sunday school. I take teams to Rwanda every other year. I am crazy busy, right? Trying to make my life matter. <laughs> I am too busy and I'm not qualified to pull up a seat to this table. That is a rather intimidating topic for me. But I went home after small group and I just knew I had to do something. For years, I had this weird idea of printing a yard sign that was big and white with simple black letters that said, don't give up. It was so random, but I would have these visions of this sign flash kind of in my mind's eye every few months, and I would shrug it off because it was just weird until that night in May 2017 when I thought, what do I do? I can print those signs. I'm not going to do nothing. That doesn't seem like an option for me. I'm going to print inspiring yard signs and then I'm going to stake them around the schools in my community anonymously. I had 20 yard signs printed. All of them said, don't give up on the back, on the front. The messages were, you are worthy of love. 
and some said, your mistakes don't define you. It was a rainy, rainy, dreary, typical organ uh, Saturday morning when my husband buckled the two young girls, our two young daughters in the car, and I was loading the signs in our trunk. And as I did, I had this thought, this is the dumbest idea I've ever had. <laughs> this is going to help nobody. This is almost embarrassing that you thought that this would help people. But I was doing this anonymously, so I didn't really have a whole lot of skin in the game. I did have to fork out some cash for the signs because yard signs aren't cheap. And my kids were already in the car. I'm just doing the thing. Even if the thing doesn't matter to anyone, it's at least I'm not doing nothing. We knocked on strangers' doors around specifically who had property around the high school and middle schools and some high traffic roads in our small town. When I showed them the sign, no website, no hashtag, no agenda, no strings attached, no organization, just a young family trying to do something, they didn't hesitate. In fact, a few of them just took the sign out of my hands and said yes. <laughs> we drove home and realized there was one more sign in our trunk, so I stuck it in my front yard. My heart was racing. I was thinking, has someone seen the signs yet? What was their reaction? But I was holding it loosely. I didn't know what the impact would be. Well, that's not true because a couple hours later, I had a neighbor who messaged me on Facebook and said, are you the one who did these signs? People online on our community Facebook page, they're talking about them, but posting pictures about them, but mostly they want to buy them. I thought, what on earth? It took me 24 of the longest hours on earth to get access into this community Facebook group and saw people's responses and I was floored. It was helping people. This foolish little sign or these 20 signs were helping people. Messages about people um, seeing them while going through a divorce, trying to fight an addiction, receiving a terrible health diagnosis, suffering with depression, losing a loved one to suicide. So many different walks of life seeing don't give up on a sign and taking hope for themselves. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe people wanted them. I came out of anonymity so that I could facilitate, facilitate sign orders for them. My name's Amy. Here's what my family did. I can order more signs. Uh, message me if you want one. And it became the least efficient way <laughs> to collect orders. But what happened within the first week is that we had over 150 sign orders and it blew up. There was a family who goes to our church who were road tripping that month from Portland, Oregon to Rochester, New York. They felt like God told them to go with their, they had three children. One was kind of preteen and two teenagers. And they said, I think we now know why. I think we're supposed to take your signs and now stickers and encouragement cards. We started to print these encouraging words on other tokens and products. We're supposed to spread these all over the United States as we drive across the country in every gas station, restaurant, a rest stop. And they did. And we, because we created an Instagram and a Facebook, people started finding us, Googling us, what is this? 
And we were able to trace back some of these encounters people had with hope at just the right moment at the right time to this family's road trip in the pizza joint that they stopped in in Wisconsin and the man who found it who was really deeply struggling and asked if we could mail him more in small little encouragement cards that he could pass out to his friends and it grew. Within 18 months, we were in all 50 states and in 26 countries. Can you believe it? 26 countries. And we had a lot of requests to translate our products for people to take on trips to the Philippines, to Costa Rica, to Uganda, to China. And we did. It, we eventually, people wanted to send us money, uh, people who really didn't know me very well and our two, my two partners in crime, Jessica, who was a graphic designer and designed and ordered the signs and products. And then Vanjie, a dear friend from college also, who helped me navigate decisions to make as this organically grew into a global movement of spreading hope and love. And it uh, was in working with them that we decided as people sended, sent us money that we needed to become a legal 501c3 nonprofit organization to have some credibility, um, also some accountability legally to the way in which we did business. We felt like it was the right decision. I wish I had all the time in the world to share with you some stories, short stories that you might relate to of people encountering the signs uh, while suffering with eating disorders, while trying to leave abusive relationships, while being laid off from work. Um, I don't have time to get specific about them, but I have had three years to think back on what on earth, why yard signs and now wristbands and car decals and more messages like, it's not too late and you matter and one day at a time, and you got this. Why, why are these messages resonating so deeply with people? Remember, this was a stupid, foolish idea. <laughs> and why, was this, why is this working? Uh, a couple insights. A couple months into the movement, I was speaking at a woman's conference in Portland. It was a professional development secular conference uh, that would become really important uh, for several reasons. And the first is that I went to a breakout session by a gal named Megan Devine. She was speaking on grief, which wasn't a very well-attended uh, session, as you can imagine, uh, but it was so insightful. And one of the things that she said was that in trying to help other people navigate grief, we tend to offer words of encouragement blanket statements of encouragement to hurry their healing, to solve their suffering, but it's like slapping a band-aid on a weeping, oozing wound, and it can be way more painful than helpful. I agreed with her. I remember the things Jer people told me when Jeremy died, things about God's timing, things about Jeremy watching me from heaven, things about God not giving me things I can't handle, and it was awful. And there might have been some truth to what was shared with me, but it did not help me at all. Uh, it was spiritually bypassing my pain, using spiritual truths, and it felt dishonoring. Uh, I, I, it was hard. 
even at 14 it was hard. And so I, I totally resonated with what Megan was saying, that the encouraging words that we plaster on people's wounds are not helpful and, and actually can be more harmful uh, where we feel like our pain is being diminished. So I went up to her afterwards and I said, Megan, I agree. I've experienced loss. I get it. But I started this movement and it's gone crazy and it has to do with plastering encouraging words on yard signs, cliche phrases on yard signs, and it is changing people's lives. It's caused people to go to rehab, to go to counseling, to, I just, I, just, I can't explain it. How do you explain it? <laughs> And she said, oh, I know exactly why it's working. She said, you are facilitating moments of sovereignty. I said, that sounds great, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> and she said, instead of someone offering hopeful messages in the middle of someone else's pain, the person who is suffering is seeing hope and through whatever lens of suffering they're experiencing, they're claiming the hope for themselves. No one's pushing it down their throats. No one's trying to diminish their pain. But instead, people are seeing the hope on a sign on the way to work and taking it. Taking the hope for themselves. That's the power of what you guys have created, of what you're facilitating. That insight has been really profound as I've seen the movement spread and spread. In fact, in this pandemic, you can imagine that people are wanting to be agents of hope. Uh, and we've seen such beautiful collective hope rising in these days. In our three years of existence, we've sold 25,000 yard signs, almost 830,000 other tokens of hope, uh, wristbands and, and pencils and stickers and pins and all sorts of goodies that we sell all at cost, uh, just trying to make it affordable for people to be able to spread hope and love. But of the 25,000 yard signs, 20% of those were sold within the first six weeks of the pandemic. People wanted to help people. And we didn't know how, but I can stake a, stake a sign in my yard in front of my business for the essential workers that are out and about. So it's it's been a timely it's been a timely movement uh, in a beautiful front row seat to really the beauty of solidarity and humanity. I've been really curious. Uh, the second thing that I've learned besides this moments of sovereignty concept is really just getting curious about what hope is. As Christians, we might have a different definition, which I'll get to, but there is a man uh, who is Richard Snyder, who was deemed the first scientist of hope. And Richard Snyder found that there are three critical elements or components of hope. First are goals, which are uh, desired positive outcomes for our lives. Maybe it's a healthy marriage. Maybe it's affordable rent. Maybe a satisfying job. So we have these positive goals for our lives. The second thing necessary for hope is identifying pathways to achieve the goals. Pathways would be like, 
Yeah, maybe taking the mundane job I don't love, but getting some other experience or uh, giving myself a chance to apply to 20 other jobs that I might really love. So there's a way I can work myself to my dream career. Or counseling is a pathway to this goal of having a very positive, healthy relationship in my life. So first are goals. Second are pathways to achieve them. And the third critical element of hope is agency. We need to have the belief in ourselves that we can obtain our goals, that it is within our ability to have these pathways, to take these actions, to achieve the goals that we want for ourselves. Goals, pathways, and a sense of agency. I thought this was so beautiful. Uh, in I wasn't the only one because in a book called Hope Rising, two gentlemen, Casey Gwynn and Dr. Chan Hellman, took Richard Snyder's three critical components of hope and they built out a hope continuum model. It's a, a continuum model. So, you know, we can float up and down these four different stages of hope or in the pursuit of hope. And they're, they're quite simple. The first stage is hope itself. We're feeling hopeful. We're obtaining the, these positive goals for our lives. Um, there might be many of them. There might be few. A note here in that some people have a really difficult time even defining a positive desired outcome for their lives, whether it's because of trauma or whether it's because of how their family, their upbringing, it is almost impossible or it is outside familiarity to define what they want for themselves, positive goals for themselves. So even stage one is not actually easy for a lot of people. But hope is the first stage. The second is when life throws curveballs, which it does. <laughs> when life throws curveballs, we move from hope to anger. And it's rightful anger. Stage two is a completely normal stage, anger. We can be angry at setbacks. We can be angry at a job loss. We can be angry at infidelity. Uh, we can be angry at a health diagnosis. And in fact, I would say the faith community isn't so great at allowing space for anger. And instead we diminish it to try to move to what we believe are more altruistic and more wholesome values. But there is a rightful place for anger. The problem is that we move from anger to despair, the third stage of hope, or pursuing hope. We go from anger to despair when we can't identify pathways. So you have this hope, and you move to anger because it didn't go as planned. And if I can't find pathways to overcome, I go into despair. And in despair, if I lose my sense of agency, if I lose the sense or belief in myself that I can overcome, then you move from despair to the fourth stage, which is the opposite of hope, not helplessness, but instead apathy. We simply stop caring. We give up. We're done. We don't have it in us. We can't overcome. Hope's too far away. And we succumb to apathy. But again, it's a continuum, so you're not stuck. And the hard part is if you are feeling in anger, despair, and apathy in certain parts of your life, 
or maybe in life in general. The encouraging word for you today is you're not stuck. Just because you can't define goals or hope for yourself doesn't mean there's good, positive outcomes ahead for you. Just because you can't identify pathways to overcome doesn't mean they're not there. Just because you can't see your ability to overcome your own strength and resiliency doesn't mean it's not there. It might take some work, some therapy, some confession, uh, some feeling the feelings we, we numb, we'd rather numb. It might be uncomfortable and take work to work up the continuum back towards hope, but it is possible. If you're feeling stuck today, an encouraging word, I don't know how and I don't know when, but you're not stuck and you can achieve hope. I was thinking about this as a faith community, these goals, pathways, and agency, and I don't want to diminish the day-to-day -day, uh, goals that we have for ourselves, our relationships, our jobs, our careers, our experiences, but I was thinking about it in terms of our spiritual faith, and God really tells us what our goals are. <laughs> in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30, 34, Jesus says that the most important commandments is love God and love others. And on a really high level as Christians, that's the goal. <laughs> Those are the goals. Love God and love others. So what are the pathways to achieve the goals? Well, through prayer, which growing up in the church, uh, it's a little bit of a sensitive topic to me. Uh, I, I haven't been able to discern God's voice very clearly in my life. Maybe some of you can relate. But prayer to me has become often a checklist. Uh, I said I would pray for this person. I should probably pray for my husband. And it's sincere, uh, but it feels linear. And I have been so stretched the last couple of years that God is a mystery and I can sit in silence and it is prayerful. So prayer, that can look like meditation. Maybe a pathway is fasting, uh, something that I have been implored to do by our church leadership. So in the month of June, I fasted from social media and certain foods and beverages and shopping as a way to silence my spirit, to deny myself in pursuit of God. So through fasting, meditation, uh, through scripture, through a faith community, uh, pathways of accountability and confession to one another. These are all ways to achieve loving God and loving others. And then third, our, our sense of agency in this Christian faith, that the belief in ourselves is actually superseded by our belief in a God who contends for us, who he can redeem anything. He can restore anything. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the Spirit of God gave us, uh, does the Spirit of God, that God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. So our sense of agency not, is not necessarily rooted in our belief in ourselves, but in a, in a God who contends for us, who gives us a spirit of power. So how, how, how can we be agents of hope? right now in a world that's not just full of believers but of pre-believers or non-believers how can we be an agent of hope i have three really simple i hope you come with low expectations but three really simple ideas for us and these are things that actually may seem simple on paper but have caused me immense tension and discomfort 
in the last three years. The first idea of how we can become an agent of hope is we simply don't do nothing. We don't do nothing. I'm so glad that in May 2017, I told myself, in light of what I learned about the suicides in my community, well, and I can't do nothing. I, I have to do something. What is your something that you can do? This month, uh, in the month of June, our pastor preached courageously and tenderly about racism. He has several black sons, although he is white, and he was passionate and brave. And one of the main takeaways from his sermon is, friends, we just don't do nothing. And so we fast. And so we listen. And I have decided that there are things that I can do in that particular context. And number one, I can listen to podcasts of people of color. I can read books written by people of color. I can talk to my children, although uncomfortable and obviously an appropriate level of detail. I can tell my children the pain and the atrocity that is racism. And we have in uh, several occasions. This is my don't do nothing. It doesn't solve the problem on a grand scale. It might even seem pretty uh, meaningless in the sense that it's not going to change a whole lot. But one of the things I've learned in the context of this movement is that the, that the little things do matter. That the yard sign, that the wristband, that giving these small little tokens to people, it matters. It can matter a whole heck of a lot. And in some occasions, our signs have even saved people from harming themselves. Don't um, di don't diminish the impact of small somethings. The small somethings where we choose to do something, take an action. Maybe it's donating to a cause. Maybe it's paying attention to your gut reaction to certain headlines. Maybe it's a wrestling in your heart. What can you do? Is it donating, volunteering, reading, listening, engaging in a conversation, calling a friend? Just don't do nothing. The second thing I've learned, the second idea I have for us is show up messed up. I am not perfect. It's been actually a little bit of a struggle the last couple years feeling put on a pedestal of sorts. In May of 2019, a story about a dad using our signs in Seattle, Washington went viral. Of course, I was on vacation and was Sabbathing, was not working or on emails, uh, but had heard that we went, we got bombarded as a movement, uh, sign orders from all over the country with media requests eventually being uh, highlighted by Good Morning America, an article about me in the Washington Post more recently this year, articles in Guidepost Magazine and in June, uh, Reader's Digest with a TED Talk coming up in a book deal that is done. The manuscript is turned in and a book publishes in April of 2021 about this movement. Wild, friends, totally wild. And I am not perfect. I am so not perfect. And it has um, been hard a little bit to navigate pride and then also people thanking me for my obedience to God in doing the movement when it did not feel like obedience it felt like I was desperate to do something. 
uh, hindsight, I can see God's hand in it, but it was not a faithful, <laughs> a faithful act of obedience. I am showing up messed up. I am not perfect. I have this very vivid memory that I think really illustrates this so beautifully. It was a couple months after the movement. There was a youth outreach uh, a couple months after our we stuck state signs for the first time. And there was a agency in our small town of Newburgh, Oregon that supports vulnerable youth. They give them a safe place to hang out and staff to support them. And they found that they were they were using the signs that were sprouting up all over our small town. They were using the signs as a way to open up conversation with these youth about why do you think these messages are on a sign? Why do you think it's uh, having an impact. What would you put on a yard sign? And someone had the idea, let's give them posters and markers and let's give them the space and creativity to make their own signs of hope. Then let's buy a bunch of Amy signs and do a sign rally where we will stand at the busy intersection and busiest intersection of our town at 4 p.m. on a Friday and hold out signs of hope for other people and get the youth involved. I was floored when I saw pictures for the first time. It was a dozen youth and staff holding out signs, some handwritten, some of ours, and hundreds and hundreds of cars passing by. I was so moved. I was so moved and they invited me to participate and I was nervous. They're just teenagers, I don't know why, but I was nervous. I parked my car across the street, I walked over, I picked up a sign and just fell in line. I was standing shoulder to shoulder with a young man. He had crazy yellow hair. He had AirPods in his ears, so we didn't really talk at all. But I noticed as we were standing there I looked over and on his arm, from his elbows to his wrists, were layers of white, thin scars. They were self-harm scars. I was moved. It is a, a vision I will never forget. Here is a young man whose deep soul wounds laying bare on his arms is holding a sign for his whole community to see that says you are worthy of love. That in feeling messed up, feeling broken, having his own wounds, that he would show up and he had so much to offer. He had so much hope to offer other people even if his life wasn't perfect. It was the most uh, striking Probably one of the most moving experiences in this movement for me was that young man with his scars holding signs of hope out for strangers. Show up messed up. You don't need to be perfect or have it all together. You can have your own wounds and still hold out hope for other people. So first was don't do nothing. Second was show up messed up. <laughs> and the third mean it for everyone. If we're going to be agents of hope and we're going to spread love, we need to mean it for everyone. This has probably brought me the most tension in my life. I put you matter on a yard sign and put it in my grass, but I didn't mean it for people of color 
who I didn't understand, who I wasn't really listening to. I was not, I'm not in a very diverse community. I didn't mean it to my friend, my LGBTQ community. I didn't understand. I wasn't in proximity. And when we say you matter, we do more than take up a foot in our grass. We listen, we engage, we empathize, even if we don't agree with everything. I have been on this long journey of meaning it for everyone, feeling convicted that I don't just put you matter on a sign in my yard and mean it for people who vote like I do, believe like I do, look like I do, or sound like I do. <sighs> it was in, a lot happened in 2017 because it was a couple months after the movement started where I was sitting in church and the pastor said the dreaded words, we're going to stop and we're going to listen to what God has to say to you. Listen, ask God, what is your calling on my life? And listen for the answer. As someone who doesn't hear God clearly, it was, it's a painful request. Uh, okay, God, here I am. I don't know if you're going to say anything to me. But I'm here, and to my surprise, God was clear. It came fast, it came clear. There was no doubt in my mind that it was God, and he told me, Amy, go be in the world. Get thick skin, get out of your Christian circle. Go with people, go be with people that aren't like you. A month later, I was at that woman's conference where I learned about moments of sovereignty when I met a woman named Missy Bird. Missy and I hit it off. She was super passionate. So I befriended her on Facebook because that's what we do, right? And the first thing I noticed is that Missy and I could not be more different. In fact, my knee-jerk reaction was, oh, man, I thought we were going to be great friends. What a bummer. But even though it was obvious on our Facebook profiles that we were very different, we went out to lunch. And with permission, I want to share with you that some of the differences that Missy and I discovered about ourselves. Missy is bisexual. She's been married to a woman and now a man. I am heterosexual. Missy grew up in the Mormon church and was abused and practices witchcraft. And I grew up in a Christian church and I am a really passionate Christian. Missy worked for Planned Parenthood in Utah, advocating for women's reproductive rights. I am pro-life I could go on and on. We disagreed about almost all things political, about who we admired in our lives and why. But meeting with Missy for lunch, we both walked away experiencing a miracle. And that miracle was we walked away feeling heard and loved. Even though we talked about all the hard things and we disagreed on everything, we felt heard and loved. So we did it again and again until eventually Missy and I decided that we would bring our unscripted, hard conversations to Facebook Live every month. <laughs> and it is our way of practicing and modeling what it's like to disagree and love one another, to say you matter and mean it to the people I don't understand, or perhaps even fundamentally disagree on some pretty important things, that she can still experience my love and vice versa. I can experience her love. One of the things God taught me in my new friendship with Missy, which you can, by the way, you can join our rebellion against hate and confirmation bias and emotional reasoning and join these Facebook Live conversations every month at Leaning Into Our Differences with Missy and Amy on Facebook. But one of the things that God really uh, 
showed me a month after I met Missy, like God was just suddenly talking to me, <laughs> is I, in order to love people who just led a different life than I did, to love well, I'm going to always need to hate my sin more than theirs. And that has come around over and over again. Amy, hate your sin. Don't hate other people's sin more. Hate your own sin more. And then loving others as you experience grace will be so much more easy as you offer the grace that you've been given. Don't do nothing. Show up messed up. And if you want to be an agent of hope, spread hope and love to everyone. Mean it for everyone. And that might take you wrestling and getting uncomfortable and listening to people that you don't understand or don't agree with. And it is the good, right work. And in fact, Jesus is such a beautiful example of that. If you want to hear other ideas, uh, other thoughts from the movement, other ideas of how to spread hope, you certainly can follow us at don'tgiveupsigns.com where you can find all our products and stories. You can also follow us on Instagram at Don't Give Up Signs and on Facebook, Don't Give Up Signs. And you can, of course, read my book coming out, published by Zondervan, coming out in April of 2021 called Signs of Hope. Spoiler alert, we don't put them in our yard. We are the signs of hope. I want to end up my session, our session together with three questions for you to consider. I hope that you can pause and, and rewind and write all of these down. But three questions for you. When your heart gets tugged on this week, whether it's in the news, in a conversation with a friend, don't do nothing. Donate, volunteer, lean in. Just don't do nothing. Second, what have you gone through that uniquely qualifies you to help others? Meaning, if we're going to show up messed up, and I have this grief and this trauma of witnessing the death, the drowning of my brother, it is amazing and beautiful to me the number of people I've encountered, uh, really young women who I can mentor, who have lost a brother or a sibling, and not necessarily to drowning. But I, my pain uniquely qualifies me to speak love to people who we can relate to. So what have you gone through that uniquely qualifies you to help others? We think our brokenness disqualifies us, but I would in fact offer that it qualifies us. If it's a eating disorder, then how can you come alongside other people through your healing to help encourage theirs? If it's going through a divorce, if it's being a, a single, being single and that being unexpected and at moments difficult, how are you coming along others who might be struggling? What uniquely qualifies you to help others? And third, who are the people that are the most difficult for you to understand? Is it people who are transgender? Is it people who are ultra-conservative or ultra-liberal? Is it uh, people in prison? Is it addict? an addict? Is it the homeless? Is it people of color? Is it Muslims? Who are the people that are difficult for you to understand? And I guess, I guess what I mean is don't just list the people, but how, how can you get in proximity and how can you listen so that you can make sure that when you're an agent of hope, you're bringing hope to everyone. 
I want to end with Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at a proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Don't give up, friends.